Hey, welcome back to Female Founder World. I'm Jasmine, I'm the host of the show and the creator of Female Founder World. We actually missed last week's episode, but we had a pretty good reason. Female Founder World hosted an event at the Museum of Ice Cream in New York, and it was massive. We took over the whole space, multiple floors. We had a full bar with female-founded brands, amazing goodie bags. We had four panel sessions, three mentor sessions, an expert speed dating bar. We had acupuncture. And we also hosted a nonprofit called Half the Story. And they're all about really just addressing people's relationships with technology and creating a safer digital future. The founder of that movement, Larissa May, is honestly incredible. She's someone that's been in my orbit for a while. I've been watching her build this amazing business. She didn't come to the event because she was speaking to Congress, making the world a better place. So we forgive her for that. But she's really just this incredible uh, brand builder, advocate, and she's a businesswoman. She's building a nonprofit, but that is a business. Just because you're not building it for profit doesn't mean that a lot of the same principles don't apply. So I interviewed her in this episode and we spoke about building a nonprofit, yes, but a lot of stuff that is applicable no matter what kind of business you're interested in building. She talks about cause marketing and we also get into how to really set boundaries for yourself and your relationship with technology. I think that as founders, we can get pretty, pretty obsessed with our screens and the relationship that we have with our phones can get off track pretty quickly when you feel like you need to be tapped in all the time and that your to-do list is never ending. So we talk about that, how to set boundaries, how to have a healthier relationship with tech as a founder and so many other things. I hope you guys love this episode. If you do, make sure you take a screenshot, share it to your Instagram stories and tag at Female Founder World. We're going to repost it. You're going to make my day and I'm going to appreciate it so much. All right, let's get into the show. You are now entering Female Founder World with your host, Jasmine Grindsworthy. Lars, welcome to Female Founder World. It's so great to have you. Thank you so much for having me. You constantly blow me away with the way that you empower women, bring women together, but also use very powerful tools to help us with making our businesses and our lives more efficient. So I consider myself lucky to be in the presence of your company and so many other game changers. Well, I am endlessly impressed with what you're doing at Half the Story. I've been following you on this kind of journey you've been on, I feel like since the beginning, but for people who don't know Half the Story, what are you guys creating over there? Yeah. So Half the Story is really the leading nonprofit on a mission to one, make digital wellness accessible to everyone and two, empower the next generation's relationship with technology so that they can thrive in the digital world, but also the physical world. And we usually talk with, you know, entrepreneurs who are building for-profit companies, but I think there is so much that we can take from your experience. You were at Kenya Forex before you've worked in startups, but also around cause marketing, how to prevent burnout. And I think there's a lot of things that anyone who's building a business or who's in this space can kind of take away from your lessons. Talk us through the early days of half the story, where this idea came from and how you kind of got it all off the ground. Cause starting a nonprofit, like how impressive. Wow. Well, I'm glad you asked me that question because a lot of people like to focus on the here and now and the success, but like many other startups, especially nonprofit startups, the journey is nuanced and it's really challenging. And half the story 
I think a lot of entrepreneurs, whether you're building a CPG brand, I spent my early career building half the story while building CPG brands like Otherland and Kinuphorix, which you're probably very familiar with. Mm-hmm. Both of those founders created a product because of their own desire. And I really believe that really what innovation is, is connecting the dots that already exist. And yes, it is creating a new product, but really what it is, is just being able to see patterns that maybe others haven't seen yet. And so when I was in college, I actually started my life working in fashion and had a fashion blog and thought that that was going to be my path. But I I'd struggled with and still live with depression and, and navigate that a lot in my life. And unfortunately, navigating depression in the digital world was really complex as a young woman at the age of 20, ripe age of 20 and 21. And I actually hit a rock bottom moment where it was life or death. And I'm very lucky to still be here. But on the flip side, I when I went through that he, that journey of healing, I realized, you know, healing is really something that you have to choose. And you can have doctors that tell you to take medicine, that tell you to do different things, but there's also a lot of self-reflection that is required on that journey. And on that period of in that period of self-reflection, I had to think about all of the tools or distractions that I had in my life. And I realized that one of the biggest drugs that they didn't ask me about in the psych unit was my addiction to technology and the drug in my pocket, mm-hmm. which was my phone. And so after that, I, I started to really look at, okay, what role is tech playing in the experience for young women and young people all over the world? And I came up with this idea that social media is only half the story, which started as a grassroots movement. And now we've really become the leaders in shaping policy, education initiatives, and community for young people all around the world. So that's where we started and where we are now. But between now and then, I mean, gosh, I was working basically... 100 plus hours a week because I have my full-time jobs building can in other land and then spending nights, weekends and days off, basically fundraising and doing speaking engagements for half the story. And we were too early. And I think sometimes in innovation, mm-hmm. whether it's for-profit or non-profit, like I wanted to take my for-profit marketing chops and approach and bring it to non-profit. And it doesn't matter where you sit, whether you're for-profit or non-profit, a lot of the struggles look the same. And I think now we're in this world where we're starting to see that brands, especially with Gen Z and Gen Alpha, there is this actually requirement that brands have to stand for something. And you can't just sit on the sidelines and that you really have to be thinking about your brand values and your cause marketing if you want to be relevant for the next gen. So now I get to do the nonprofit work every day, but I also get to work with corporations and influencer companies and direct to consumer brands who give their money to us. And sometimes I actually get to consult for them along the way so that everyone feels good about the impact they're making. Oh my God, what a story. I'm sorry that that's how you came to this line of work, but we're so lucky to have you doing this. I think that what you're doing is so needed and so important. And I can see how when you would have started, it would have it would have been too early and you would have been, you know, people wouldn't have quite understood because now you look at half the story and what you're doing and everyone's like, yeah, of course, like this is the most needed thing ever. I am a hundred percent addicted to this like device in my pocket. And how do I create better boundaries around that? I want to, I want to keep in those like early days and understand, you know, what it takes to get a nonprofit off the ground. You've obviously worked in startups before and taken a lot of that experience and brought it into kind of a, a parallel space. If somebody wanted to go out there and create a nonprofit, like what practically, tangibly, what do you do? Yeah. 
So I think before you even create it and do it and perhaps the story, I actually was doing it, quote unquote, for two years before it was a nonprofit. It was just like an art project, mm. believe it or not. Yeah. Like I put a bunch of stickers out of my dorm room and started handing them out. That's how it started. But I think you have to really think about, okay, what is the right model for my business? Is it for profit? Is it nonprofit? Is it a B Corp? Is it a public benefit corporation? And especially, I think we've seen a lot of healthcare consumer products and brands actually crumble in the last couple of years because the traditional venture model doesn't actually prioritize the end user in care. I mean, look at the Adderall shortage we're seeing right now because of Cerebral and BetterHelp. And I think as a leader, like you're not only building a business, but you are putting yourself on the front lines in a really big way. Like I have chosen mm-hmm. to do this, but also, you know, I'm putting myself on the line in a real way publicly by testifying in Congress. I'm doing a lot of speaking nationally and internationally. And so I think you have to like, really think about like, what are my values? And what am I building? And what is the right entity or structure? And then I think if you decide a nonprofit is for you, which the benefits to that are that you can actually publish data and collect data in a way that benefits the world, you can develop partnerships and get big grants from the government, all of that is a little bit slower. But I think it allows you to do more intentional work that really prioritizes the end user in mind. And then what you need to do is I always say, like, try to get a little press and traction on what you're doing. And then you need a lawyer to ultimately help you apply for a 501c3 application, which is ultimately the status in the United States that allows your organization to be uh, tax-free. So you don't pay taxes on employees. You don't pay taxes on earned revenue, which as a nonprofit, you can have earned revenue, and we do. And then the next piece is you basically need to assemble a board of directors because in the case of the nonprofit, it's a public entity that a collective unit is responsible for. So I will Mm -hmm. not receive a paycheck at the end of the day because I'm not going to exit this in a traditional venture way. And I have a governing board that ultimately has to approve budgets, that has to make decisions and work with me, which can be beneficial and that they help fundraise and help with, you know, a lot with a lot of the governance, but is also a challenge. And there's a lot of mobilizing and making sure that you bring the right people in your corner. And then from there, you really need to figure out what your programs are going to be and how you are going to measure impact in a measurable and meaningful way. And that very much so looks like data because that's what you're showing. When you go to a a venture investor, you're showing your KPIs, your ROAS, your CAC, your retention. Those are the metrics you're showing there. But when you're working within the lens of the nonprofit space, you need to be showing meaningful impact measurement, which can be really difficult sometimes when you're working in humanities or mental health, which is always not always a, a black or white space. Can you share some kind of milestones for people to understand? I feel like you've touched on like some of the partnerships that you've had and you've touched on the fact that, you know, you've spoken in front of Congress. And what are these milestones to help people understand the momentum that you've created behind this movement? I will say about a year ago, I had to make a decision. And it was we during the pandemic, we received our first grants that allowed us to be in the multi hundred thousand dollar operating budget range. And for a couple of years, we were operating within 30 to 50 to a hundred thousand dollars, which is virtually impossible to hire someone full time and virtually impossible to be sustainable. And Mm. quite honestly, you know, last year after we brought, after Bella joined Kin, I had to kind of make a, a hard decision and call collectively with Jen, the founder of Kin around like, okay, half the story is blowing up. Kin is also blowing up. Like, 
you know, both of them are really important to me. But at the end of the day, I had to really make a choice because one of them was going to suffer. Ultimately, I I chose to do half the story full time. And that was a really, really big turning point for me. And I don't think a lot of people realize that like, I've only been able to work on this mission full time for like, actually since December of last year. So we've been able to achieve this year is wild. I mean, we have two full-time employees. We've helped with state legislation. We're working on federal legislation now. We've brought on amazing corporate partners like Vans and L'Oreal, Maybelline, Pinterest, um, all people that we're really proud to work with. And that's just a a testament to going all in. And as a founder, I will say I was really afraid for a long time. How am I going to make this work? How am I going to, you know, do this? How am I going to, how am I going to do all these things? And I think you have this moment where you have to look at your life as a chapter in a book and you have to say, okay, like, what am I going to do to say yes to me? And like, what is it going to take to go 100% in? And that's what I did. And the last year has done nothing but brought amazing opportunities and challenges. We relaunched our educational programming. I've worked with over you know, 3,500 students this fall. And we are, you know, we, we've also had some amazing conversations with the Department of Education and are now exploring how do we expand? How do we find a university partner so that we can get greater grants and also bridge the gap between digital equity and digital well-being? So it's pretty wild. Um, and I never really thought that by just doing something seven years ago to help my help myself, honestly, at that time mm. would um sort of the the forefront of a movement. And I I guess I have to stop and reflect and appreciate that. But we still deal with a lot of the challenges that other founders deal with from donor management, which is investor management and for-profit world to managing team dynamics, to managing growth, to hedging growth, and also looking at just macroeconomic conditions and, and understanding and preparing for how that will impact us. You just mentioned before, like digital equity and digital well-being for people who are just total, you know, they're not, they're not in this space. What does that mean? And what does it mean to bridge the gap? So digital equity is typically defined as um, the idea that in order for someone to be a meaningful and productive and, and also a part of society, that they have full access to the internet and also digital products like computers, phones, et cetera. The way that we look at digital well-being is really the intersection between emotional health and digital habits. So for us, it's how do we develop meaningful, productive, and healthy relationships with technology so they help us thrive online and offline. What When you think about digital equity, and some of you that are listening might be familiar with broadband bills or initiatives that states and governments have been working on, which ultimately is about bringing the internet to people who don't have it. However, mm-hmm. when we think about um, digital access, it typically starts and stops with internet, then getting them the actual hardware, and then really teaching them um, you know, just how to do typing and things like that. But those are typically the communities that also have less access to SEL, social emotional learning skills. And so at Half the Story, we really want to focus on, and I think that's another benefit of being a nonprofit, is that you can prioritize equity over profit and serve people who wouldn't necessarily have access to the things that you're developing. So we want to be able to bridge that gap, um, as well as many other gaps that we hope to do as our mission is to make this accessible to everyone. I think something, you know, and you, you touched on this a little bit, but 
yes, you're building a nonprofit, but you're building a startup. And I think that that the shared experiences that you have with pretty much everyone who is listening to this show, who is trying to create something from nothing and put it out into the world will be really meaningful. And there is something about when you're, when you're starting a business, if you're trying to start something, you have, you feel like you have to constantly be online. Like I, I know even with what we're building, which is nowhere near the size of a lot of the, a lot of the people that have been on the show, I feel like I get left behind if I'm not constantly checking, if I'm not constantly on Instagram, I feel like the, the mood is shifts so quickly and, and it's, exhausting. And I'm wondering as someone who's like an expert in this space, how have you personally created that boundary around yourself as an entrepreneur? And then also the way that you're interacting with the technology that you need to build a business? Well, I think that's a really good question. And quite honestly, I think there's a lot more pressure on women. It's like, We're living in a world where there's more pressure than ever for female entrepreneurs to have a digital presence and investors are investing more in females that do have a digital presence, which is a whole other equity issue that women have to work harder and have like Mm. full-time jobs. Um, And yet they're still receiving a small percentage of the funding, but that's a whole other conversation. I think the biggest thing as a founder is like, it's so easy to get caught up on where you're not. And I think social media accelerates that feeling and it accelerates this um, feeling of being less than, especially in a sea of female founders. And as a founder, what you really need to do is you need to really think about what is the opportunity cost of your time being spent online. And I think you have to really batch your time on the internet accordingly. So It starts with what's your intention? Like, why are you using these platforms? And to be honest, I had to think really hard about that about a year ago. And I was like, I don't really get why I'm on online. I'm doing this digital well-being thing. What's the purpose? And then I realized, well, Mm -hmm. my job to be on the internet is to basically tell people about the pros and cons of it and to share our methodology at Half the Story with the masses, period. So what I've done is I basically every day I'm trying to read the news and I usually try to make videos a couple times a week that's addressing trends or addressing big questions around digital well-being. And that feels really meaningful to me. I'm also able to, I just did a film shoot a few weeks ago, which allowed me to basically pre-record a number of videos about this topic so that I, I wouldn't have to spend an entire week or time every day creating the content. And I think it's hard. And to be honest, I think you need to just be real with yourself as a founder. Like, is this really the best use of my time or should I be investing it elsewhere? And I think for you, like you already, you have so many platforms, you have female founder world, you have your own platform as an influencer and all of those are revenue streams for you. So I'm sure there's like a increasing pressure, but I think you, you, you can't, you can't do everything. And as a founder, you mm. got to decide, like, am I going to focus on acquiring customers online and or am I going to be focusing on my social media following and there's like a there's a fine balance and you have to be very thoughtful about when and how and where you are engaging with these platforms how much this is like you know a very specific question but like how much time are you allowing yourself you know yourself to be spending on social apps and like which ones are you using and what's your relationship like so that's a great question. I think it, it, um, my, the app I probably spend the most time on is LinkedIn, which is funny because I don't think that's what we think of when we think about social apps. And that's because I've been using LinkedIn so much lately. I really am into the content on there. Yeah. I think the content is strong. I think 
their algorithm honestly provides content that's more valuable for me than Instagram and TikTok, period. And so Mm -hmm. I really enjoy being on there. I think also it feels like if I'm engaging on LinkedIn, it ultimately is supporting my bottom line and my business in like a very specific way. It's like LinkedIn is like a bottom of the funnel tactic for me, whether it be for donors or for uh, brand partnerships. It's just like a great tool. Whereas the way I look at... um, Instagram or TikTok is like, this is a top of the funnel tool for me, which is building brand awareness and um, building my own platform. And that's really important to have too. But there's a time and place for each of them. And I think where you're at in your business and also the nature of your work depends. And so, you know, the, the half the story and our advocacy work and our brand work, honestly, like, it is a lot about me being the face of it. But I've made a really active effort to step away. Like if you go to our social media, it's pretty much all of our teens making videos about things. And I'm trying to pull myself out of the narrative of half the story every day because mm-hmm. as a business owner, you also have to separate who you are from what you do. And there's so many reasons for that. One, Ooh. financially. Yeah. Two, emotionally. Three, just culturally. We've seen, you know, can- the power of cancel culture. And I'm not saying it's something that we shouldn't be living in a fear mindset, but you've got to have your, your, your butt covered. And like, you can't just put everything into like, you got to have to like, you got to have church and state <laughs> separation, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I think that's a big, big focus for me. And honestly, I just like, when it comes to social media now, if I'm not feeling inspired, I'm not doing it. I'm like, whatever, I'm doing enough podcasts, I'm doing enough PR stuff that that can populate my feed, but like, I really don't get on unless I'm feeling passionate about it because I think that it translate to my, translates to my followers and it just doesn't feel authentic to me. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. That's very true. Um, what you just said there really resonates with me. I feel like I, I live in this tension of, I don't know whether I'm, cause I'm, I'm doing a similar thing with you. Whereas I'm not fronting the like TikTok content. I don't make the TikTok yeah. videos. Um, I am in some like Instagram reels on the, on the brand account, but like not really, it's really about centering, you know, the people that we're featuring. I'm trying to build a media and events business. That is a true media and events business. It's not about me as a content creator. And that's something that I'm intentionally trying to do. And I constantly catch myself where I'm like, this would probably go a lot faster if I was just, you know, trying to make myself be a creator or a personality or something. And am I not doing it because I'm afraid because I've seen people being pulled down in a really public way and I don't want to do it? Or am I not doing it because it's like intrinsically what feels right to me? And like, where, like, what is actually the influence there? And what is my motivation? Is it fear or is it actually the right decision? Yeah. And also pressure. I mean, I, mm. I saw your Instagram earlier and you were like, should I be throwing a 200 person event the yeah. week before today? It's, <laughs> like, it's like, do you really want to put yourself through that? Like, is that going to be, yeah. you know, like, and, and of course there's the question of the bottom line of like, does your business need that revenue? But I think it's also like, you know, you don't always have to be in pain or pressure to see progress. And I think a lot of times mm-hmm. female entrepreneurs are, like we think that pain is progress and pressure is progress, mm. but it's not really the case. It's like, it almost feels unnatural to feel relaxed and like, <laughs> like weekends. It's like, Oh my God, I have an entire day. Wow. Like how do you get comfortable with sitting with yourself? Because productivity becomes easier to sit with than space. So 
Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's tough. And I think it's very nuanced and I'm curious for you. I know that like after you become a mom, I think your perspective on it is probably going to change. I think your priorities are going to change. And I think that's actually a really positive thing because it actually might bring you a lot of peace. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how that shifts. And I've definitely seen it with other, with other women building businesses and how they're, just their mindset kind of shifts. And I feel like we can also get really stuck in like, like you said, that that busy work because we're so uncomfortable with feeling comfortable that we need to constantly be doing things. But is it actually the thing that's driving the most traction? I don't know. Yeah. And I think it's like, and that's one of the things that makes moms really effective is that Mm. they know how to ruthlessly prioritize. And Mm. now it's like, you have to get yourself to do that. But I think once you have a child or, you know, whether you're dealing with a crisis or whatever is coming in your life, um, you just prioritize because that is the only way to do it. So yeah, that's absolutely. kind of my, 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 my POV, but yeah, there's, there's so much to unpack. And I, and I think as women, I mean, the data speaks for itself that we are more impacted inherently by social media and by the negative impacts of it. And it's just, it's not easy. Yeah. I want to um, spend a bit of the time that I've got you talking about cause marketing, because this is something that you are obviously an expert in. For people who are building brands, they have consumer businesses, and they're interested in this idea of supporting causes or also just being aligned with a bigger mission rather than, you know, just shilling product. I think that that works in multiple ways in that um, you know, brands who are, have a deeper mission seem to resonate better and have that stronger sense of community around them. Uh, how do brands do this? Well, who have you seen do it? Well, talk us through, talk us through. Yeah. So I think first and foremost, uh, cause marketing is more of an inside job than it is an outside job. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, just doing a give back on Giving Tuesday or a kickback to a brand is not what it really means to stand for something. And I always say that as a brand, you know, you need to align internally on what your story is or your commitment is before you want to share that story with the world. So I think, you know, what that means is aligning what that cause looks like. So if your cause is mental health, first of all, how are you supporting your employees? how are you implementing practices and the content that you're sharing with the world? And then the third part of that is who are the people that you're supporting that are doing this work in the real world? And also how are you bringing them in to make an impact in, in, and ultimately make you better at what you do? And so, you know, I will say that Maybelline has done a really good job with that in terms of like one, they've worked with half the story. They've brought me in to, you know, consult with them. They've been very open, like literally opened their whole Rolodex before they had, they just had this really cool campaign called my first better day. And I think Mm -hmm. what was cool is that they brought in all their mental health um, nonprofits as consultants on the campaign um, to ensure that they were really messaging the right way. And I think a lot of brands are sometimes afraid to open those dialogues because they don't want to get it. They don't want to be wrong, but it's like so much better to just have an open book and also to have internal policies where, you know, or times where you're bringing your thought leaders in to, to lead mental health discussions and partnerships and all of that internally. So there's that. I think the biggest misconception that people have is that you know, just giving money away means that you're a cause-driven brand. I think now Gen Z is poking holes more than ever at every, all the policies, all the brands, everything we do, which 
is a conversation for another day. But what it means is that if you are pursuing any sort of social impact platform, it really has to be a platform. And mm-hmm. you have to live and breathe it in every single brand touch point, not just what your give back is. And so that would be my biggest thing is like, if anyone that's listening to this is is hearing this, it's like, unless you're willing to fully commit at every touch point of your brand internally and externally, it might not make sense for you to be a cause driven initiative right now. And it might be okay to just like have your integrity and focus on developing a really good product and then, you know, go from there. Yeah, that makes sense. That's really good advice. And one of the last questions that we ask folks who come on the show is just for a resource and something that's been helping you as you've been up-leveling as an entrepreneur, as a brand builder, as a leader, what's something that you think folks should look into? Oh man, I have so many different things. So yeah, give uh, me all of them. Yeah. So first and foremost, I think you need to have a really strong team. And I recently started working with a business coach and that's been Mm. honestly such a game changer for me because I, when you're a CEO, every day, it's like you're getting up and you're just like hitting a bunch of punching bags. Like you constantly have things thrown at you. It can be really lonely. It can also be something that you take home with you and your partner becomes your punching bag. And so, yeah. you know, in periods of rapid growth, like you need to have someone that's rooting for you, but it's also going to like call you in when maybe what you're doing isn't right. Um, and so I'm feeling really grateful to have a coach. Outside of that, I think you need to have a set of tools that you can always go back to as a way to get reignited, creative, or grounded. And so something that, you know, I do as a team So I guess there's a couple of things. So one as a team is like, I think the digital world is like, it's super hard to see how people are doing on your team. And sometimes people don't show up in the ways that they can or should. So one thing I've started doing is like, there's a tool called how we feel and it's an app. And basically I have my team members check in on it. You check in like every day and just say how they're feeling. And it's not a, I'm good, I'm bad, which is typically how we tell ourselves in meeting, but it like really gets you to think about it. Like, are you distraught? Are you lonely? Are you feeling disconnected or disengaged? Because then as a leader and as teammates, we can better figure out how to support each other. So that's like one thing, which has also helped me get more support. And then I think the last thing is, is, you know, using tools that ultimately are going to help you with, um, you know, up leveling your performance. And so there's a really good tool I use called Freedom App. And it actually helps mm-hmm. me with blocking certain apps on my computer um, so that I'm not able to access them during the day. And it's like, nope, sorry, you can only check email three times a day. And then you're doing your calls and doing deep work because a lot of us struggle with the toggle tax. And that's ultimately the idea that every time you switch between a task, it has a psychological toll and also a time, a, a, also a productivity toll. And we don't address it that way, but the toggle tax is a real thing. And so I always like to say, do everything in your power to eliminate that tax. I used to use the freedom app a lot when I was working, when I was writing and I was working as a freelance writer and it, and by the end of the day, I didn't need it. It was just at the beginning of the day when I was trying to like get in some kind of zone and then, you know, you can, you can get in the flow a little bit more, but that's a really, really good tool. That's a great recommendation. Yeah, no, I, look, I think time is our most valuable asset and we have to protect it, especially in the attention economy. You were talking about that app that you used with your team to check in with them. And I'm I'm really curious about like how you intentionally build a team culture that also lives the mission of half the story. So good. That's a really good question. So 
um, we've actually, we just had an offsite and we've built in like a, a lot of things around this. So one is I think having more of a, um, more of a reflective rather than a reactive culture. And here's what I mean by that. I think that I used to be the type of person where if something was wrong, I would immediately be like, need to fix this now, 30 emails, call you, text you, let's go. What that leads to is oftentimes a culture of fear. It creates the feeling that people are less than and not good enough. And over time that leads to burnout and hurts retention. Now I really believe in like the stop, reflect, and roll <laughs> mentality, mm-hmm. which is, you know, if you got a bad piece of feedback from a client or a partner or something doesn't go right, you really need to stop. You need to take a breath. You need to take a walk. You need to really think actively about what are the processes that you can put in place to eliminate that and then come to the conversation with either a solution or a resolution which is what we say at Hop the Story. And what that means is that you're either going to come and solve a problem or you're going to make a conclusion that says, you know what, this thing failed or this thing is this. And, you know, I think the language that you use internally and the way that you get your team to communicate is like so much more important than even the outcomes. Um, We also do no meetings on Fridays so that people can get Mm -hmm. into deep work or know that they have time with another employee to dive into deep concepts or even just check out early because they're like not being productive. I mean, those are just a couple of the things we do, but I I have a, I believe that culture is queen and it's like oftentimes the last thing you think about when you're building a company and you're trying to meet a bottom Mm -hmm. line. But what you have to remember is that you aren't going anywhere without the people behind you and on your team. And sometimes when you move too fast, you're going to go alone and you're not going to be going together. That is a great piece of advice for people who want to find you and they want to find half the story. Where should they go? Half the story project.com or half the story on Instagram or living like Lars. Lars, I've loved chatting with you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been such a treat. Thank you so much.